This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Florida has the largest tax credit scholarship program in the United States, serving about 4% of all school-aged students in Florida. Tax credits are similar to school vouchers in that the government pays for a portion of the cost of attending a private school when a family selects one. But tax credits are unique in that they reimburse fully those who donate money to a private foundation which administers the scholarship. So it's an indirect way of providing a voucher to families that are eligible for participation in the program. Not only does Florida have the largest tax credit scholarship program, but the Florida legislature has just this summer enacted a large-scale expansion of this program. It lifted caps on income eligibility. It increased the amount of the scholarship for students. It allowed for direct entry into the program without first attending a public school, and it increased the dollar commitment to the program. Altogether, it's a big-time change. But the question arises, is this program harming the public schools? Critics of school voucher and tax credit programs say such programs take away money from the public schools. The best students uh, leave the public schools for the private schools, uh, leaving the uh, more problematic students behind. Teachers and staff get discouraged and the whole process undermines our public school system. So what's the truth of the matter? Now, in a new paper entitled Effects of Scaling Up Private School Choice Programs on Public School Students, David Figlio, Cassandra Hart, and Krzysztof Kabofnik, pardon my pronunciation, have released a new study that examines the Florida setting and looks at these particular issues very closely and carefully. I'm very pleased to have David Figlio, a professor of economics at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, David, for joining me. Nice to, nice to be here, Paul. Well, David, before we dig into the details of your careful evaluation of the Florida Tax Scholarship Program, what do you see as its key features? I summarized some of them there, but maybe you see some key features to the program that should be highlighted. So the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program is uh, pretty remarkable. It, it is, as you mentioned, the largest um, school voucher or school voucher-like program in the United States. Um, it's um, over the course of the time I've been studying the program, it is targeted. So uh, that means it was it's students uh, have to be eligible for free or reduced price lunch uh, after receiving initial eligibility. The um, it's possible to increase your income. So it was intentionally targeting a group of students who had really not had very many opportunities to attend private school because of financial um, constraints in the past. Um, um, another thing that's very uh, distinctive about the Florida program and what I quite like is, the, um, is that students don't have to uh, identify a private school before they get the uh, voucher. Um, so in some other settings, you have to go and first obtain admission to a private school prior to actually soliciting a voucher. And that's a lot of work on the front end without knowing that you're going to be able to get the, um, get, get the financial support on the back end. Florida flipped the script and said, apply for the voucher first, and then you can take the voucher to any participating private school. That's a distinctive feature as well. 
Um, and of course, it's a statewide program, which is not especially distinctive, but Florida is a large geographically, socioeconomically, racially, and ethnically diverse state. Um, and with a huge number of students who are uh, eligible even before the most recent expansion. And, and that makes it pretty noteworthy as well. So how does it vary across the state? Are, are some places in the state uh, um, tax credit scholarship hotspots and other places they hardly have any, or is it fairly evenly distributed across the state? So um, it turns out that, that there are parts of the state of Florida that seem to have more um, uh, more activity in terms of this scholarship than others. Of course, 100% of students um, who meet the income eligibility requirements, and as, I, as you mentioned the preamble, um, you either had, in order to get it, you either had to have attended a Florida public school or be entering kindergarten or first grade in order to be eligible for, for the scholarship. Um, I mean, there's huge numbers of people who, who are eligible throughout the state. Um, there were a few um, communities in Florida that seemed to have especially high take up, especially in the uh, early years of the program. And then of course there becomes word of mouth and uh, one thing leads to another. Um, but then there's another reason that we, uh, that Cassandra Hart and I, when we were first starting to study this program, um, thought it was pretty interesting. And that was, we initially looked at the intro very introduction of this program. And we thought that private schools, that the public schools rather, um, in communities with higher density of private schools nearby, might be particularly sensitive to the competition, the new competition being, um, being introduced by the scholarship program. And it turned out that nearly 20 years ago when the program was, uh, was first introduced, that was the case that, that the larger the density of private schools and the diversity of private schools in an area, the higher the take up was for uh, the scholarship in that area. And 20 years- well, I guess that just makes sense. I mean, if there's more opportunity out there, if there's if people are going to see it and they're gonna hear more about it, right? If there's only one private school, you don't like that school, you're not gonna go. If you've got six or seven to choose among, you're much more likely that people will, say, hey, let's look at look into this. Absolutely, and I think it's there on, on both sides of it. Not only is it the families looking at the take up, but uh, looking at the variety of private schools because it's not just the number of private schools. It turns out that we, we looked at a few different ways of measuring the private school density from the number of private schools to the variety of private schools. So for example, if all the private schools have the same religious flavor, um, that wasn't as consequential as if you let's had, say religious affiliation. Sure. It's not ice cream here. It's a little more. Oh, it's sure. a, a little more fundamental to our identity than that. So I yeah. guess if every so if yeah. every school is a Catholic school, well, then you probably are interested if you're a Catholic. But if you've got a lot of choices across religious traditions, then that, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but having said that. Um, 
how many students do you include in your study? How many, how many uh, students are, are you really looking at in this? Is this a small scale study? So, um, so in the new study that you referenced, um, we have we decided to take a look at the scaling up. What happens as the program expanded? And the answer is we're looking at every child born, every child born in the state of Florida between um, 1992, or I'm sorry, be, we're looking at every child born in the state of Florida between 1994 and 2000. And two who attended Florida public schools. So the answer is we're well over a million students wow. are in this uh, study. A lot of them. And, and then how do you set up the study so that you can carefully measure whether or not uh, a school is being affected by, a public school is being affected by this competition? Sure. So there's a couple of things that, that we wanted to do. So as I mentioned a moment ago, we took a look at the, uh, we were able to characterize for every neighborhood in the state of Florida, the level of potential private school competition, uh, both facing the school as well as in the district. Um, and we looked both at school, comp school level competition as well as district level competition. Oh, explain that to me. I'm a little confused on that. So sure. school level competition is whether there's a lot of private schools in the immediate neighborhood of the school, right? Absolutely. And a variety of schools and other measures that you have there of that variety. Yeah. So, but then what do you mean by district level competition? So we also wanted to see, not, basically what we wanted to see is not only what was the what was the level of competition in the immediate vicinity of the school? But what was the average level of competition, school level competition across the district? And the reason we wanted to differentiate between the two of those was because some of these responses, these competitive responses, could be school level decisions, but they also could be district level decisions. Principals talk to one another, school uh, district administrators um, might be looking at the full set. Um, the money, Florida has big school districts that are at the county level. So the entire Miami-Dade County is a single school district. And it could be that different places- I think, I think there are only 67 school districts State of so there's a huge difference between a district and and the neighborhood school and you know in Boston where I live I live in the suburbs there's not much difference between yeah. an individual school and the district it's all pretty much the same story but in Florida it's a big difference right Florida it's a big difference I live in the north shore of uh of Chicago and uh there's um my high school district is a single school for example, um, in Evanston. And, uh, but in Florida, it's a different story. And it turns out just uh, that, that both the local competition faced by the school, as well as the average competition faced by schools in a district, each independently, each independently affect, um, uh, affect uh, public school performance. So, so to answer your, your question about, uh, about what we did, to, how we did to try to set this thing up, um, so before this, before the voucher program even started, thinking back year year two thousand, we characterized the the um, the level of private potential private school competition faced by every single public school within the five mile radius of that public school. Then we wanted to see whether or not this 
as the program scaled up, whether or not schools with more potential private school competition saw experienced in differentially increased test scores or differentially um, improved student behavior outcomes like uh, suspensions and absences, re reduces uh, suspensions and absences. Um, and so what we ended up doing, what we ended up doing is following the same children over time as they were experiencing schools that were experiencing, as they were attending public schools that were experiencing more, um, uh, uh, more private school competition as measured by this interaction between, um, between the level of pre-program private school density in a number, measured in a number of different ways, and the overall statewide scale up of the program. And we found that that the public schools that had the greatest, um, the greatest degree of uh, potential competition from private schools saw ever increasing levels of um, uh, math and reading performance and improvements in terms of reductions in um, suspensions and absences as the program scaled up and expanded. Um, and that was true. Um, and, and that was especially true for relatively um, low-income students. So um, we saw this for everybody. If you look at the children who have never been observed on free or reduced price lunch, we still see improved um, outcomes for those students as well. But for the students who um, had been on free or reduced price lunch, um, there we saw the bigger, even bigger um, estimated benefits. But all of these estimates are relatively small, aren't they? How, how, would you, how would you characterize the, I know they're all statistically significant, so that's the magic thing for, for scientists, but, but how about the, for the ordinary person, they wanna know, are these really big effects or are they sort of tiny effects? So how would you characterize well, them? I mean, the first thing I'll characterize them is absolutely not negative. Okay, so um, that's so, right. Oh, the whole argument is you're going to get negative effects, right? And so yeah, you're, you're saying yeah. you're not negative. No, yeah. Precisely. And so, so I'll, I have to say, um, uh, I've been studying uh, school vouchers and private school choice programs for more than 20 years, right? I mean, we've known each other for a couple of decades now, and um, and when you and I first met. I would say I was not hostile to the idea of private school choice programs by any means, but certainly skeptical. I was one of these people who believed that um, if people are making choices and sticking with those choices, then it probably is good for the people, the, the families making that, making, making any choice a person, a family makes, it's probably on average good for that family. Um, but I was very worried about what might be the implications for, um, for the public schools, 
right? Because um, a lot of people, myself at the time, uh, included at the time, we're talking about cream skimming, the notion of now I actually think of that as a pretty awful turn of phrase, but, um, but 20, 25 years ago, I wasn't, I mean, I, I wasn't as thoughtful as I hopefully am today. And so, um, but I was worried, okay, what, what maybe, what, maybe what would happen is the private schools to these programs would, would attract away a lot of the more motivated families and the public schools would be left with um, families who might be, um, might be less motivated, for example, or, um, or less likely to be committed to school or something of that nature. Um, I was worried about what might happen. What could public schools end up not having critical mass? Might they might they run into major financial problems that might cause them to really have to cut essential programs? All those types of things I was really worried about. So so I if you would ask me to put money on this uh, twenty years ago, I would have said I bet this might be a negative. And then would the program be would the program be bad? Well, I would have said, well, I guess we, in prospect, I think we need to trade off the potential benefits for the individual students and families against the potential um, general, general equilibrium types of, sorry, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, a jargony phrase, but I think you can probably understand from context, right, that, that maybe, maybe our, we're trading off um, benefits for certain individuals and families against possible costs for the uh, other students who are not going to the private schools. Well, now fast forward to today, and um, it, again, um, that didn't happen at least not in our analysis. By the way, also Chris Karbovnik and I studied Ohio. Didn't happen in Ohio either. We thought we saw, we actually saw in a very different, um, in a very different scholarship type of program in Ohio, uh, modest, small, positive competitive effects of this program. And so well, I, I, find, I find your story really uh, interesting to, uh, to follow because I do remember when we first met approximately 20 years ago that I said, well, you know, I, you know, this, I think David is more concerned about these programs than, than I am because he's sort of using creams, creaming and, and, and cherry picking. And those are the words that people tended to use if they were opposed to uh, this opportunity for families. And uh, I, I tended to avoid them. Uh, so you didn't, you know, I always felt like you were going to call the shots, however your data came out, but, but I, I sort of thought that probably you were looking at this program with some suspicion in Florida. So, uh, yeah, no, it's really interesting to see how uh, data can really shape one's thinking as uh, you, as you work with it over the years. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that um, I think we all, every serious scholar should always be looking at every program with um, a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, but, um, but I think I trust the scholars who are ready to let the data change their minds. And this is a case in which, um, this is a case in which, again, um, I was really, you know, I was, I was nervous about this, um, this aspect, uh, this potential aspect of the, of the program, because again, 
just because we see uh, the potential for competition doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. We see this in lots of sectors, but it sure, again, um, one reason we just, we just, Chris and Cassie and I decided to do this study is that we noticed that 100% pretty much, or nearly 100% of all the studies um, uh, in the US setting that it looked at voucher introductions had really done just that, looked at voucher introductions. And what happens when, um, and what happens when a program grows? A lot of people were citing my work with Cassie Hart about the introduction of this Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program and saying, see, see, look, look, um, it didn't hurt the public schools. There, uh, there was even modest positive competitive effects. Instead, we wanted to see, okay, well, what happens when the program grows and develops? Because you can tell stories about how the results could have gone either way. Well, you um, would expect that the effects would be you wouldn't see effects except in the long term. So your initial study could have been absolutely correct that there was no negative effect initially, but gradually over time, as a program gets bigger and bigger, it does tend to uh, have an effect. And so you really have to look at something over a long period of time. And, and that's not what you've done. So actually, this is now what we really want to know is over a 10 year, 20 year period of time, what, what what effect is a program? How exactly, how long a time period are you looking at? So what's the... So we are able, so we're able to study, um, we're able to, so, so um, state of Florida, you know, changed their outcomes. Uh, so there's data, there are data limitations, their outcome changes. We were able to follow, um, uh, we were able to follow reading test scores up to 2017. So a uh, good solid 16 years after the introduction of the program, we were able to follow math test scores up to four, 2014, but then there were some changes in the testing after that. Um, so we were able to go well over a decade after the introduction, well over a decade after the introduction of the program. Um, I, I noticed that you had more uh, bigger positive effects in reading than in math. And in your paper, you don't discuss that very much. I, I'm wondering, you know, it's going to be hard to come up with a definitive reason, but do you have any speculation as to why you might have seen more positive effects in the reading side than the math side? You know, I look at that. I look at those two and I view it as still not all that dissimilar between reading and math, right? I mean, um, you know, you you see, yeah, there are some, um, um, I, I mean, um, we do see that, that, yeah, there's, there's, there's somewhat larger for, somewhat larger for reading the math. It's kind of interesting. I don't really have a great story for that. Um, uh, and one reason why I don't have a great story for that is that um, um, I don't know enough about the nature of the educational production going on in in, in these um, in these schools and for different groups of students. Um, it is interesting 
that for the kids never on free or reduced price lunch, we saw basically the same results for reading and math. Whereas the students who were on free or reduced price lunch, we saw considerably larger for reading than for math. Um, I guess I'd love learning scientists to, to dig in and try to help to fig, help help us figure that, that one out. Well, one, one argument that comes to my mind is that it, an elementary school teacher or middle school teacher, and that's what we're looking at here, uh, is uh, probably a better reader than, uh, a, a, than a, a mathematician on average. Uh, the people who go into that field probably have, they probably love to, to read books themselves. And so reading is really what they're passionate about and, and doing the numbers is something they do because they have to do that. And so if you're being asked, uh, or if you're trying to get the school to improve, it's, it may be easier to get the, uh, the staff to really you know, move forward on, on the reading front. So sure. is that a possible explanation? I think so. I mean, I have another speculation too, um, in the spirit of just pure speculation. And that is, so Florida, um, as you know, has been very active in a large way, a number of ways, uh, in a large number of ways in terms of education reforms during this time period. And one of the things that Florida did, for example, in elementary school was introduce a, um, a uh, third grade uh, mandatory retention policy for kids who didn't uh, perform at a particular level on the reading exam. So you might imagine that, um, so you might also imagine that there could have been, given that Florida was um, shining such light on this on this kind of primacy of reading that um, in elementary school that um, that and, and this could help me to understand why we see this more for the free and reduced price uh, eligible lunch eligible kids than for the non free and reduced price lunch eligible kids as well that it could very well be that they that these schools were really putting a lot of eggs in the basket of trying to boost reading if you could if you could do one or the other well here's one that the state um, the state has said is is so so essential that that they wanted to have the that, that wasn't just random the state decided that that they wanted to have every kid have a very strong literacy foundation before progressing to fourth grade and um and that could have some that could be another explanation too so another topic that's related to this is just exactly what's going on that's producing this positive response and one possibility is they've got smaller classes because some of the kids have left the school to go to uh, the private schools. And so they've got the staff that they, uh, you know, was, had signed up for uh, assuming the, you know, the enrollment and they had less. And so, and then maybe they, the central office said, well, yeah, we better let them have fewer kids so they can be better schools. So could it be class sizes driving this? So we started, okay, um, I am going to stammer for a moment because I haven't read the um, paper extremely thoroughly uh, in, the last, uh, in the last few, uh, few days. However, um, um, however, one of the things we decided to 
do is uh, try to take a look at some of these mechanisms. And class uh, and we do find um, we do find evidence that class size that that this program that the schools that the public schools that experienced uh, increased competition from this program did modestly reduce class size. We then went through an exercise to try to figure out how much of this could possibly explain um, explain how much of the how much of our estimates could possibly be explained by class size given that the magnitude of the class size reduction we observe and the extant literature on the estimated effects of class size on um, on um, uh, student test scores. And we came up with a sense that no more than about a fifth of this result could be explained by class size. Um, so, so the answer we think is, yeah, class size played a role, but it wasn't the, the, the primary driver of these results. So it could be a modest explanation. Another thought that occurred to me is maybe one you can't measure, but there might be ways of measuring it. And that would be, Maybe the central office assigned good principles to the schools that were facing the most competition. After all, central office has some discretion in, in, in moving principles around, and principles we know can have an effect on the quality of instruction at a school. So maybe it, they were just uh, saying, look, we've got to take some action here. And uh, we want to keep our student population and we're going to use deploy our staff in the most effective way possible to maintain our enrollment. I mean, that certainly could be that certainly could be a possibility. Um, we don't have a good way of gauging. We don't have a good way of gauging that with the data at our disposal. However, um, this is certain. OK, so certainly one of, one of the things we find is that we find evidence that there's both, as I mentioned before, both your local competition as well as the average local competition faced by all schools in the district. Each of those two things seem to affect um, seem to affect um, uh, uh, test scores. Um, so that suggests either that school districts that are facing greater degrees of competition in general are acting um, intentionally, um, or that principals across the district are meeting and talking about things and are acting intentionally, or a combination of the two. And if there's district intentionality, then that could think that could uh, mean. Why, why wouldn't it be the case that districts might engage in, in that way? I mean, um, uh, district leaders are thinking about all the different buildings on uh, all the different buildings and they might be saying, okay, well here, this is where we're gonna target our resources. Um, I have no way of knowing whether that's true, but I think the, the, the smoking gun suggests that, suggests that something like that might be going on. So David, let me ask you about the other argument that's made against uh, the tax credit scholarship program, and that is that it takes away money from the public schools. And I know that it doesn't necessarily take money away on a per pupil basis, but the overall revenue available to the superintendent and the school board 
will be less if they don't have the students they would have otherwise had. And isn't this a concern, a legitimate concern? And does your research have anything to say about that? You know, I continue to think this is a legitimate concern. And one reason that I continue to think it's a legitimate, legitimate concern is that, um, is that Florida is a exquisitely bad place to study that exact question. And the reason Florida is a bad place to study that question is exactly for the reasons we've been talking about. Massive school systems, right? Um, and so um, the what happens if a school district lose, uh, what happens if a big school district loses four, five, 10% of its students? Well, you know, there's lots of teacher turnover every year. Um, there's uh, lots of opportunities for real reallocation of resources across buildings. Um, um, you know, Florida is a rapid growth state. Maybe what happens is where there, there's not a lot of school closures in a rapid growth state. So maybe they might open schools at a slower pace that type of thing. So because Florida has huge school systems in big districts, um, I'm gonna continue to be potentially concerned about this until I have good empirical evidence to suggest that I shouldn't be anymore. Um, but this is the place where I think that, um, um, where I think that it would be wrong for people in contexts that are massively different from Florida just to blithely say, well, look, I heard David Figlio say that, that, that um, public schools were benefiting as a result of this competition, so we don't have to worry about the money thing. My sense is, now, my sense is, let's see what happens in um, some other jurisdictions. Now, what did I find with Chris Karbovnik in Ohio? Ohio is a place where school systems are, there are a few large school systems, but a bunch of smaller ones. In Ohio, we found, okay, only short term so far, but we found positive competitive effects of the EdChoice scholarship program in, um, in Ohio. And that's a place where there might be more biting, binding resource constraints than a place like Florida. So I would love to take a look at Ohio. Um, I mean, I'm having these conversations now with my friends at the Ohio Department of Education about uh, doing something similar to this, but taking a longer, longer term look at the effects of competition in Ohio as well. Um, if we start to see that just like I found in the short in the short run in both Ohio and Florida, two very different systems, both modest positive competitive effects. If we now see two very different systems, two very different states, positive and increasing longer run effects, then I'm going to start feeling less and less concerned about the resource piece and say it looks like maybe there might be enough, um, maybe there's enough slack in the system. And I don't mean that in terms of inefficiency, I mean that in terms of flexibility in the system, that maybe the resource piece might not be huge, at least at the magnitude we're talking about. Well, you know, the point that you're making, I believe, is, is that really there's a, a large turnover in the teaching staff every year. Some teachers retire, new teachers are hired. You can make decisions as to where you're going to hire the new teachers. You can, you can encourage retirement. Uh, there's a lot of 
of the lot of options uh, available. And then in fact, school administrators think about this all the time because of natural changes in the size of the incoming population. Right now we're going into a, a, a slow growth uh, period. Babies aren't being born as fast and babies get born at different rates at different times. So uh, school systems have for decades and centuries learned to adjust to the changing dynamics of the demography that they are working with. And uh, yeah. this shouldn't be altogether different from that. I agree. I mean, um, as long as, I mean, there is, I'm certain that there's a minimum efficient scale uh, for schools. And I don't know how small that minimum efficient scale is. Once you get down below some minimum efficient scale where it's just where we're getting to the place where we have to worry about closures, where where schools can't can't um, uh, you know effectively offer the courses they want to offer and that type of thing, then we might be getting into that uh, that type of situation. Um, at these scholarship and voucher programs at the magnitudes that we're seeing don't seem like we're butting up against that. Now, if we end up in a world in which you have 100%, you know, basically 100% of kids uh, could, to, could have a scholarship. I mean, you know, we don't want to make wild out of sample, um, out of sample speculation. However, one of the things that this particular program should give some comfort to is Florida is a huge program. Most states that have programs like this are much smaller. A lot of times people, policymakers and practitioners in those states are really worried about what happens if that program scales up from some tiny fraction of the student body to a somewhat larger tiny fraction of the student body. And I think that our research um, should give a bit of comfort to those people that it's not like those states are gonna drive off a cliff if suddenly 1%, 2% of the student body, 3%, 4% of the student body are taking these uh, scholarships to private schools. But, but now in Florida, they've just passed a new law, which is going to open up eligibility and provide uh, new incentives and probably more private schools uh, will come online. You never know. Or maybe this could ex double again. Maybe in another 10 years time, you'll need to go back and, and look at this uh, still another time and see what happens if it moves to uh, still uh, a different uh, scale level. Well, I certainly hope that I am uh, that I still have this uh, analytical skill set 10 years hence to be able to do that. My field of economics is changing so rapidly and you're constantly teaching this, I'm, this old dog's constantly having to learn the new tricks. <laughs> Um, but uh, so far, 25 years in, I'm hanging in. So hopefully 35 years in, I'll be in a, a position to, uh, to be able to do that and, um, and help to, uh, help to um, inform this discussion. I guess my biggest feeling is, uh, my biggest feeling for, for, voucher, for voucher advocates and voucher skeptics alike is that my take about this is, is this transforming anything in some monumental way for better or for worse? The answer seems to be no, right? I mean, for voucher advocates who think that suddenly this type of competition is gonna augur in some new thing and suddenly the United States is gonna be first, second, third in the world in test scores. Well, that's obviously, I think, not gonna happen due to, from, from this particular 
uh, policy uh, tool. Voucher opponents who are who are um, wringing their hands thinking about how if a state goes and expands school choice options to relatively low-income students or students with relatively few options, um, even large numbers of students, that somehow that's going to blow up the public schools and the public schools are going to do poorly. Well, I think this research and the research I've done in Ohio should make those people feel more comfortable that it's not that that doesn't seem like it's happening. And if anything, the public schools seem to be benefiting a bit. So well, David, um, it's, it's good to have your 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 moderation and your caution voiced in a time when uh, rhetorical styles uh, verge to the extreme. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for the invitation. I look forward to seeing you in 10 years when we talk about this again. I hope I can do that. So I've been speaking with David Figlio, a professor of economics at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and co-author of a recently released study entitled Effects of Scaling Up Private School Choice on Public School Students. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.